Hi there, Paula Eamon here with a heart full of love for you and a heart's desire to encourage you to endure this short life with joy and hope, by the grace of God, for the glory of God. You're listening to Cloud of Witnesses. I can't express to you enough how much this next message blessed my heart. Jason took every effort to encourage all of us that a union with Christ is the best hope a person can have. In fact, it's not our best hope, it's our only hope. That being the case, what then are our worst hopes? Our ability to work hard enough to please God is one. Our ability to stop sinning is another. The Bible says that nothing good dwells in us. So we can't work hard enough to please God and we can't stop sinning. Striving for either of these leads to sheer and utter exhaustion of the worst kind. Lay that burden down, my friend. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. Jesus completed the work. In fact, the final words he spoke before he died were, It is finished. Have you believed this to be true? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sins? If so, you've been united to Christ. Oh, the hope that comes from that blessed union. Listen as Jason describes all of this in much greater detail in episode 17, Rooted and Grounded in Christ, part 4. Romans chapter 8. And before we dive in, we need to pray, okay? Let's pray. Father, uh, I pray that our hearts would reflect that submissiveness to you, that we would listen to your words, uh, that we would dig in and to embrace the applications that come from who you have told us we are in Christ pray that you would strengthen us now with your spirit. Give us, give us that spiritual interest that uh, overcomes the tiredness that we're experiencing right now, that overcomes the distraction. Lord, it's, it's only you that can place within us that hunger, and so I pray that you would do that for us tonight. Would we be able to see from your word wondrous things? And then I pray that you would help us to be able to apply them by your grace in our everyday lives. Thank you for Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Uh, I was going to lead off with the question, who's seen the movie Annie? Then I realized what respectable young man would ever admit in a public setting to seeing Annie, let alone any musical, right? So nobody, I'm not going to ask that question, right? So just think about it in your head, right? You remember the movie Annie, because I'm sure you've probably seen it or heard about it or something like that, right? Uh, the, the orphan girl who is rescued from the orphanage by uh, rich daddy Warbucks who then adopts her into his family and she lives happily ever after, okay? Uh, a great, heartwarming story. It's, it's, uh, it's based on a 1924 comic strip. It's been made into a musical that was on Broadway, a book, a movie, multiple movies, uh, even a live, they did recently, they did a live TV showing of it, right? So it's a great, it's a great story. It's a rags to riches story. It kind of resonates, resonates with us because it gives us hope that no matter how bad your situation may seem, there is a possibility that someone will come to your rescue and bring you into a situation where all your needs are met and where you finally find a place of belonging, and it resonates with us because as humans, we long for this place of belonging, don't we? He's, he's built that into us. We need a place to call home. We need a, a family, maybe when we don't have one. 
We need somebody to care for us and to give us what we feel like we need. And this is where we're going to end up in this concept of being part of a family, the family of God. And as we've worked through what it means to be united to Christ, we're reminded that part of that understanding, there's lots to it, but part of it is that we have been adopted into the family of God because of Christ. We are a child of God. Now, that is kind of a rags-to-riches story, right? Let's uh, remind ourselves of the gospel. We were an orphan, separated from God by our sin, with no thought or desire to please him. We were lost and beyond hope, and our situation was desperate. Maybe no scripture passage best encapsulates this other than Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and this is what it says. I'll read it to you, and I want you to listen. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation, our way of living in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In Christ, this is what we have been made. We have been adopted into his family. Rather than being, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, the children of wrath, we are now the children of of God. We see it here in Romans 8, and we're going to read several sections of this, but Romans 8, real quickly, just go to verses 16 and 17. This will, will, kind of, this will help set the stage for us, okay? Verses 16 and 17. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we now, because of Jesus Christ, are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We are part of the family of God in Christ. Now, once again, I want to remind you, these truths only apply to those who are in Christ. It's a different story if you're not in Christ. It's a different story if you haven't been redeemed. If you haven't been redeemed, the description of you, what God says you are, is Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5, right? Or 1 through 4. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. You live according to the, 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 you live in obedience to the prince of the power of the air. You have a spirit in you that is disobedient. You have a manner of life that is characterized by fulfilling the lust of your flesh and the desires of your flesh and your mind. And you're dead to all the things of God. Outside of Christ, 
That's who God says you are. There's a great contrast between those two, isn't it? I'll appeal to you again later tonight, but I'd appeal to you again now. Don't live outside of Christ. Don't try to live outside of Christ. Outside of him, there is no life. Submit yourself to Jesus. Find forgiveness and grace. Find a place of belonging. Find a place of love that you have never experienced in your life. Find the weight taken off. Submit yourself to Christ. Be part of this family, right? So my goal tonight is from the truth of Scripture and with the help of the Spirit to help you remember who you are in Christ. And this is why we're here in Romans chapter 8. So I want, I, I want to give you two things tonight. One, your union with Christ changes your perspective of your own performance, what you do. And two, your union with Christ gives you hope. Okay? Two massive truths that probably we could spend a session on in each of these. I'm going to compact them a little bit because tomorrow we want to get to number three. Your union with Christ reminds you of the love that you have in God. Okay? So that's where we're going. Let's dive in. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Look at verse 1. We're going to read a little bit here, verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to make some observations about the text, okay? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For that the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. We'll make our way through some more of that in just a little bit. But I want to remind you that in Christ your perspective of your performance changes, right? You must believe the truth that as a child of God, you do not face condemnation, right? There's a, there's a monumental truth here, and really, it's a monumental truth that is built up to through the entirety of the book of Romans, because even in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is arguing about two identities, right? Who we are in Adam, our old sinful nature, uh, condemned by God, and he goes all the way back to Adam because of what we looked at in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? He goes back to Adam, who you are in Adam, versus who you are in Christ. And so he's getting back to the subject as he comes into Romans chapter 8 and verses 1, and he reminds us again, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now that's in opposition to those who are not in Christ Jesus, who are in Adam, because in Adam all sin. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. What does this mean? It means that we have to believe that we have been forgiven for all of our sins. Because we are in Christ, we are not guilty. We don't bear the shame of our sin because someone bore it for us. Jesus took upon himself the shame of my sin. 
and I don't have to bear that anymore. We don't have to face the consequences of our sin. All of the wrath of God against my sin has been poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has none left for me because of Christ. You cannot do anything to get God to love you any more than he already does because of Christ. You cannot do anything to get God to love you any less because he already loves you fully in Jesus Christ. Right? This is huge. You being pleasing to God is not dependent upon your performance. Right? In, in so many regards, we get the cart before the horse in this, don't we? We think that because of something that I do, or maybe because of something that I don't do, that somehow God will love me more or love me less because of those two things. Is that the truth of Scripture? Is this the promise that is given to us at the beginning of Romans chapter 8? No, no. There is no condemnation in Christ, there's none left. There is no wrath that I must bear. There is none left. There is no more punishment that I must somehow atone for because Jesus has paid it all. I don't face the consequences of sin because Christ has faced them for me. And I am free now from all of the guilt and the shame that comes because of my sin. And I stand uncondemned. This is what verse 2 reinforces for us. For the law of the spirit of life in, G in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I have been forgiven because I am in Christ. Second truth that we have to believe here. Not only have I been forgiven because I'm in Christ, but I didn't do anything to earn this freedom. This wasn't mine somehow because of my value, my worth, my works, something that I've done. It wasn't mine because somehow I'm good enough or earned enough. This is solely due to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who took upon himself the punishment for our sins and provided a way for us to be reconciled to God. Look at verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. You know what? You can't obey enough to please God. Right? We read that in verse, verse 8. Right? In the flesh, I can't do enough to please God. I can't. It's impossible. He says it again here in verse 3. The law, keeping the law, cannot bring me to God. It's weak. Keeping the law is weak through the flesh. But you know what God did? God in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. It is Jesus himself that accomplished this for us. You can't do anything to earn this kind of freedom. Nothing at all. The hymn writer, um, her last name is Top Lady, uh, in the hymn, she wrote, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing. It only comes from Christ. 
Let's make some applications. Some of you have a very close personal relationship with guilt. It's plaguing you in your mind, in your heart. In some ways, you find it always to be your fault. In some ways, you make excuses or rationalize situations by saying, I could have done this or I should have done that. And you live shackled to your fleshly nature because of guilt. And it weighs you down emotionally, spiritually, practically. You live in the land of guilt. My friend, Jesus took that. Jesus took that. That guilt is not yours anymore. You do not have to live with guilt because Jesus has paid it all. Some of you struggle with shame. The shame of your sin, maybe your past, is something that you would never like to converse with, about, with anybody. Maybe there are situations that you have experienced that bring you incredible shame. And you wrestle deeply with self-loathing, constant depressive thoughts about how unworthy you are because of some past sin. I would invite you to come to the one who can give you rest. To come and lay the shame down. It has been nailed to the cross of Christ. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. Let's flip this just a little bit. Some of you wrestle with sinful ambition. You wrestle with this concept that I can be more pleasing to God because I can just do one more thing. I can just serve him in one more way. I can just read my Bible just a little bit longer. I can pray just a little bit more. I can do that one more thing so that he will be pleased with me. That's not any different. Because it's wholly dependent upon you and it's wholly under your own effort. Let me let you in on a little secret. You can't read the Bible enough. You can't pray enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't be kind enough. Because your standing with God is not dependent upon those things. Now, since you have been made right with God through Jesus Christ, since you have your, for, your sins forgiven through Jesus Christ, a proper response is to love him and to serve him and to want to know him and to want to communicate with him in prayer and through his word. But if you're doing those things to somehow earn favor with him, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. The Pharisees tried it. They tried to please God by their works. And what did they end up doing? Missing Jesus himself and crucifying him on a cross. You can't do enough to get God to accept you. But in Christ, God has already accepted you. Some of you need to live like you have been set free in Christ. It's one thing to understand this, isn't it? It's one thing to rejoice in this concept. It's one thing to embrace it and say, man, I am sure thankful and I want to worship Jesus Christ because he has set me free and no longer am I under condemnation. 
But there's a connected concept here in Romans chapter 8 that we need to flesh out just a little bit as an application. Some of you have known Jesus for a while, and yet you're not living like it. Now, that could be for a couple of reasons. One, maybe you don't know Jesus like you think you do. And we need to rewind to that gospel reminder at the beginning. And you need to come to Christ. And you need to repent of your sins. And by faith, you need to accept his gift of salvation. But maybe there's others of you that you have been saved and that Christ is in you, but you are giving in to your temptations and you are living in fleshly ways and not even seeking to please God. You are allowing sin to rule in your body. Uh, we could flip back a couple of chapters to Romans chapter 6. Paul has an entire discourse in Romans chapter 6 about what it means to either allow to live in the flesh or live versus the spirit. And he brings some of that back here into Romans chapter 8. We've already read up to verse 8, but look at verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you have Christ's spirits, you're part of his family. And verse 10, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, you will die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not been received by the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You have not been adopted into the family of God to continue to live as children of disobedience. You have not been made part of God's family to live like part of the devil's family. So you need to embrace this truth and you need to live like you are. Live like who you are. Now, does that mean that we're not going to experience any temptations? <laughs> I wish that was the case. I wish I could stand here and tell you that you will never struggle or wrestle with the flesh. I wish I could tell you that it's easy going from here on out. It's not. It's not. And there will be times in your life where you will wrestle. Maybe it's with addictions. Maybe it's with a sharp tongue. Maybe it's with wrong types of friendships. Maybe it's with a whole host of other things that would seek to trip us up. But whatever the case, stop living like you're not and start living like who you are. You have been made alive through the work of the Spirit in Christ. Live like it. Live like it. Let me try to illustrate this. Um, uh, I mentioned earlier that I like football. Uh, there's a uh, wide receiver. He's retired now, Chad Johnson. Uh, anybody know Ocho Cinco? Right? There we go, Ocho Cinco. Cincinnati Bengals, right? He was a great wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals. Probably wasted his career in Cincinnati, but nah, who knows. Uh, fascinating story about him. He is notoriously thrifty. 
As a matter of fact, um, uh, some of the statistics have come out, and he saved 83% of his earnings from the NFL. When uh, first, his first couple of years in the NFL, he actually, and nobody knew this, but he, 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 he's told the story now since he's out of the NFL, but he lived at the Bengals facility. He didn't, he didn't get an apartment or anything like that. He actually lived at the facility. And uh, he, they, they asked him, like, what are you doing? Right? He's like, what? They've got showers here. I can work out. There's a TV with a PlayStation. What else do I need? Right? He lived there at the stadium uh, for over two years until the coach finally came to him and said, look, man, you've got to get your own place. And he finally got an own place, but it was close to the stadium within driving distance. It was cheap. Um, he didn't buy expensive jewelry. Uh, as a matter of fact, after his career, he confessed that he went to Claire's. All of you young, uh, young ladies in here are like, yes, Claire's, man. And I said, why would I waste my money on all of this expensive jewelry when I can go to Claire's and get one for five bucks and it looks like the real thing, right? He didn't waste any of his money on those. And he, he ended up saving 83% of his earnings from the NFL. He didn't behave like a normal NFL player, did he? This was completely different. This is something that was completely different. He was driven by something different. And that made him act differently. You have been adopted into the family of God. You're part of his family. That looks different. It looks different. You don't live according to the values of this world. You don't march according to their orders. You look different, and you're going to. But there's value in the end. So do you feel the pressure to keep up? Do you feel the weight of not doing enough? Do you feel the guilt for not being good enough? Let me remind you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God that has been adopted into his family and you can approach him, the end of our text here in verses 15 and 16, you can approach him with this spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is this familial and familiar name of God. We don't have to stand at distance from him because he is our father. We can approach him with desire and dependence and familiarity and humility and confidence that he hears us and he knows. You have been made part of the family. Live like it. Live like it. Now, does this truth that we are the children of God who are not condemned mean then that bad things will never happen to us? Quite possibly, this is one of the most difficult aspects to wrap our minds around. Why do bad things happen? A famous book was written uh, several years ago, why do, why do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Right? And in it, the philosopher tried to give an answer to this question uh, outside of biblical truth, so really, it really wasn't that significant. But that doesn't mean that the question's not significant. Why do bad things happen? Why does life seem like it at some times doesn't work out in the ways that we expect? Is it possible for believers who have been connected to Christ to have to suffer? And if so, what do we do with that? Uh, again, I'm going to try to give an illustration that will probably date me some. How many of you remember the famous boxer Mike Tyson? Hey, more than I thought. This is great. Right? Mike Tyson... Uh, when I was a kid, original Nintendo, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, right? Fantastic game. Excellent. Okay, Mike Tyson was, for those of you who don't know, Mike Tyson was a boxer. 
um, and a very eccentric personality. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember the first time you heard Mike Tyson actually say something. Was it a surprising experience for you? Yeah, like Mike Tyson is a big, burly dude. He was uh, the most feared boxer of my generation. Um, and he was, he was fear-inducing. And he had a voice like a seventh grader. It was the weirdest thing that you have ever heard in your life. And so my favorite Mike Tyson quote, this is a great quote, all right? And if you hear it, it's even better because he kind of talked really high and he had a little bit of a lisp, like this. And so they were, the interviewer was asking him about his fight with Buster Douglas. He said, what are you gonna do? Buster Douglas is kind of, uh, you know, he's got this strategy and he thinks he can beat you, uh, beat you in this fight. And Mike Tyson says, says this, he says, in a, imagine this in a high pitched lisp, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. It's a great quote, right? because it's so true. We all have a plan and then sometimes life just kind of punches you in the mouth and it really stinks, right? And these disappointments and suffering and all of the problems that we face can really cause us to despair. What do we do? Does our union with Christ speak to this? Absolutely. Here we are in Romans chapter eight, okay? We've made our way through this understanding of what our union with Christ and how it frees us from condemnation. And here we come into verse 17. We are heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And then you have this transition phrase, if so be that we suffer with him, we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption unto the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Look, suffering is part of our existence here on this earth. It is. And again, I wish I could tell you it was different. But we don't have to give in to the hopelessness that may be dogging us. We can find hope in our union with Jesus Christ, even though we live in this messed up world. Right? The text of our scripture in Romans 8 just told us that even creation suffers. Right? Bad things happen in nature. Uh, I told you about the hurricanes in North Carolina. They're devastating, absolutely devastating. If you come to some of these communities after, after a hurricane, you will see entire towns flattened. Like literally, the tallest thing that's standing upright is the foundation stub walls, which are maybe six or eight inches off the ground. That's it. Absolute devastation. Earthquakes. The forests around here over the last decade or so have been devastated by beetles. Fires. Floods. Right? Creation is groaning. You know what? This is not how God created it to be. It's not what God made the earth to function like. And the scriptures tell us that nature itself is even waiting with hope to be remade. 
Creation suffers. Believers suffer. Let's pick up in 23. And not only they, not only creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, Christians, people who are in Christ, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. The fullness of our salvation is not yet quite complete, is it? We still struggle with our flesh, don't we? Even in the physical sense, talking to Mr. Ben. He's sore. He's been lifting snow machines all over the place, right? He's sore. Now, it's a little bit up there, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. We're the same age, so I can't say anything, (laughs) right? Our physical bodies suffer. They struggle. We hurt with pain. And not only that, we suffer persecution, don't we? All across the world tonight, there are people being persecuted for their faith. They live in countries in which they are not free to gather to worship. They live in places where they have to, uh, in clandestine places, have baptisms. They're not allowed to publicly own scripture. And they're definitely not allowed to meet for worship. They face all kinds of obstacles to the worship of Jesus Christ. They struggle to even get access to the Bible. And yet, I would suggest that probably within this room, not only do every single one of us own one copy of the scriptures, we probably own four or five or six or more. In 30 seconds on my computer, I can access not only this translation of scripture, but probably a hundred more. And I can access it in multiple different languages. And yet there's places where they barely have the scriptures. Not only do believers suffer persecution, but they suffer difficulties too. They suffer health difficulties and family troubles. They struggle through the death of loved ones. Several years back, I had a pastor friend who uh, I was close with. Pastored over in Idaho. He wasn't that much older than I. uh, maybe not even a year, Uh, they found underneath of his arm a lump diagnosed as melanoma, fast and aggressive. Within four months, he was gone. He loved Jesus. He loved his family. He ministered for Christ. Why? Why does that happen? We are going to face devastating circumstances because we live in a world that is cursed by sin. At every level, in our relationships, in our, in our physical bodies, in our governments, in every part of our human existence, we bump up against every single day the curse of sin, and it wrecks everything. How can we have hope? You may face some devastating circumstances in your life, but I can tell you, not with the strength of my voice because it wavers, but with the surety of God's promises that he can give you hope. Here's where it's found. We read past one of them in verse 18. Verse 18 says this, for I reckon, I hold this to be true, 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The suffering that we currently face does not compare to the glory that is coming. I have no way to adequately describe that to you. Scriptures give us hints of it as we read in Revelation, and as I read even some in Revelation 21, of the joy that we will experience as we will dwell with God and He will be with us, and He will be our God and we will be His people. You know what the verse following says? That He's going to wipe away every tear. I believe it's these tears of suffering. I believe that He will make right in glorious restitution, every suffering that we face because he said it would be true. It doesn't even compare. Another hymn writer wrote it this way. He said, sometimes the day seems long and our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. At times the sky seems dark with not a ray of light. We're tossed and driven on, no human help in sight. But there is one in heaven who knows our deepest care. Let Jesus solve your problems, just go to him in prayer. Life's day will soon be o'er. All storms forever past will cross the great divide to glory safe at last. We'll share the joys of heaven, a harp, a home, a crown. The tempter will be banished. We'll lay our burdens down. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase, so bravely run the race till we see Christ. It's going to be worth it. That's not my promise. That's his. How else can we find hope? Not, in this, not only in this promise that it's going to be worth it if we'll endure, but we have incredible help as we endure. Look at verses 26 and 27. Okay, 26, 27. Um, uh, let's back up because I think we finished at like tw 23 or 24, okay? For we're saved by hope, verse 24. For we're saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? Okay, it's not hope if you can actually see it. So this is an invisible hope that we hold on to. But if we hope for that which we see not, then we do it with patience and we wait for it. But we need help in this. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. How can we keep having hope? Because we have a Spirit who helps us. He knows our weaknesses, and you know what he does? He prays for us. I don't know if you've ever been through a circumstance yet in which you have no words. You don't know what to say. The pain's too great, or the struggle is too much. If you haven't faced it yet, you'll probably get there sometime. 
You know what? The promise of Scripture is that the Spirit of God, in that moment when we don't have words to pray, will pray for us in perfect conjunction with the will of God. He helps us. At our weakest, at our darkest moments, He helps us. And we find the promise of the 23rd Psalm to be very true. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And in the darkest moments, the Spirit is with us, praying that we will endure to the end. This gives hope. We have hope because God has promised to us that it's worth it. We have hope because the Spirit of God helps us. And we have hope because God's promised plan is good. We're to a familiar text as we make our way into verse 28, right? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. God's plan is good. Now, I know that some may be tempted to dismiss this truth, and admittedly, it's hard to embrace this while suffering. Uh, and I want to give you a quick recommendation. If you're helping somebody who's suffering, don't just glibly say this to them. Oh, you know what? All things work together for good. Now, it is difficult to see that God is up to something good in the middle of something bad. But I want to remind you that believing that good will come through suffering does not diminish the path of suffering that it often comes by. These are deep, worn, difficult pathways in which it is incredibly difficult to believe that God is good and that he has a good plan for my sanctification so that I look like Jesus Christ. That's tough to hold on to. And you may have to help your friend or your loved one remember this truth. But do that with compassion. Do that with compassion. But this is a truth that we must hold on to, right? That good can come from bad how do I know that this is true? How do I know that God can work all things together for good? Well, I know this to be true because God took the worst bad and brought the best good. That's a terrible English sentence, okay? But God took the worst bad and brought the best good. What is the worst bad? The unjust murder of the perfect Jesus Christ. That's the worst thing that has ever happened. And what did God bring? My adoption into his family. My forgiveness of all of my sins. The redemption of mankind through the greatest tragedy that has ever taken place. How do I know that Romans 8.28 is right and true? How can I anchor my soul to this concept? Because God made it true in Jesus. 
And when I struggle to believe that God can make good out of bad, I need to look back to the cross. And I need to see the suffering Savior that at the darkest moment in human history, God in his goodness was up to the best good that I could ever have in my entire life. And yes, God can work all things for good because he already has. And in my deepest, darkest moments, I can hold on to this truth that God's plan is good. I want to tell you one last story. Pastor John Bunyan wrote this in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, a really long time ago. And yet it holds true today. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's a story that has a deeper meaning. It's attached to our Christian life. And Bunyan made it obviously clear. His main character is named Christian. Not hard to see the connection there, right? But Christian is traveling his journey, and his companion's name is Hopeful. Christian and Hopeful are captured in one account by the giant Despair. And the giant Despair snatches them up and he throws them into his dungeon. And he is, uh, his wicked wife, Diffidence, says to him, Don't kill Christian and Hopeful. Discourage them to the point where they do it themselves. And she eggs her husband on to torture Christian and Hopeful to the point where they consider suicide. They are despairing beyond all hope. And they almost do. And Bunyan writes that uh, in this account that they begin praying on Saturday evening and they continue almost to daybreak when suddenly Christian remembers something. And here's his quote. What a fool I am thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Hopeful responds, that's good news. Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. And he does. And the key promise opens every gate in Doubting Castle. And Christian and Hopeful escape. Friends, you have a key. You have a key. And there are times when you may feel like you are trapped in Doubting Castle, filled with skepticism and fear, filled with worry and doubt, filled with your own self-righteousness, your inability to please God according to your own works. You may even get to the point where you despair of life itself. But you have a key. You have a key. It is the very promise of God that says to you, you are part of my family and you have hope. You have hope because out of bad, I can bring good. You have hope because you have the spirit of God that prays for you and helps you in your weakness. And you have hope because there will come a day when every difficulty that you face, when everything that you suffer through, will be worth it because you'll be with Christ. My dear brothers and sisters, would you realize who you are in Jesus?
would you realize that the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? And would you run from your despair to what you have in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, your promises are true. They're right and they're good. And so often we struggle to believe. We wrestle with doubt and fear, with shame and guilt. We fail to remember that we have been redeemed and adopted into the family of God. We fail to believe and rest the truth that we are no longer condemned, but righteous before you. We wrestle with despair and forget that we have hope because of Jesus Christ. Dear Father, help us remember. Please help us remember. Would your spirit take your words and plant them deep within us that we would remember that we have been called to be the children of God. And then help us live like it, please. Help us live like it. Pray for my friends here. I pray for those who do not yet have the hope and joy of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that you would lovingly bring to bear on their consciences the weight of their sin. And then through the work of your spirit, would you make them alive to Jesus? Would you show them the hope that's found in you? Pray for my friends here who struggle with remembering who they are in Christ. Pray that you would encourage them. Help them to hold on to hope. Pray that you would give them grace to remember that they are not condemned. And I pray that you would help them to grow in their union with Jesus Christ. May you do this work according to your will and for your glory so that we can rejoice in what you're doing in people's lives. We'll remember to give you thanks for it. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name.